and welcome to June, and also to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 136. It seems as though last week's reverse psychology worked quite well, as I'd been mentioning how we'd not seen temperatures above 20 degrees or 68 Fahrenheit in the whole of May, and of course the last two days of the month we did. It's also nice to see all of the people that complained about the rotten weather in the winter now complaining that it's too hot. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we had a long weekend here, so plenty of walking, although I did work yesterday because while it may be a holiday in some places, the news tends to not take a day off, and taking a Monday off usually means more work during the rest of the week. Also, after a couple of phone calls, I did manage to get my second vaccination appointment confirmed for next week. I've heard mixed reports about those, some people saying it's better than the first, some saying that it's the same, and some saying that it's worse. I guess it has to be one of the three. I spent about half an hour waiting for someone to answer and it's always a worry these days when you call someone or call a company that you'll spend 30 minutes waiting and then get cut off. But it was all okay. I also had a company that I subscribed to text me and say my payment had failed, which of course it would have because my old card was out of date. It said text the words call me to receive an immediate callback. Well, that was three days ago. I also got another delivery this week, nothing important, but the drivers used to knock on the door, put your package by the step and then wait for me to open it before hopping back in their vehicle. Well, now I think they've realised that if they don't bother to knock and just leave the package on the front step, they can save about 25 seconds per house. Which is fine if you're actually home, but aren't quite as fast as Usain Bolt to get to the door. But in Scotland it rains, and people send stuff that isn't packaged properly. The other danger, of course, is that you open the door and trip over the package because you didn't know that it was there. But on the bright side, we've actually had some awesome weather here over the long weekend, which almost never happens. Loosely, today's podcast all has the connection to the letter M. We have Metler Toledo, Mobilo, and Pasquale and Adventures Milkubator. I didn't really want to overemphasize it, though, in case it sounded like an episode of Sesame Street. And so our guests this week are Peter Limberg from Mobilo, Sejal Ravji, director of Pasquale and Adventures, and Rob Rogers, senior advisor, food safety and regulations of Metla Toledo product inspection. And that brings us to the news you may have missed. Fonterra set its opening farm gate milk price forecast and updated its business performance. Mula and Little GB relaunched their fixed price option for milk supplying farmers, and Saputo acquired an ingredients company and the Shees Cheese Alternative Maker, which is based not far from me on the beautiful island of Butte. Ulrich and Short launched a protein for the plant-based sector, Global Data said Nestle NPDs are boosting dairy alternatives in Asia, and there is a new fortress checkware for the dairy industry. Sinlay gave an update on flooding in the Canterbury region of New Zealand. A new Tetra Pak solution helps cut water usage and carbon emissions for the dairy sector, and Christian Hansen launched a global science-based online platform on probiotics. We had a rather worrying article on how human activity is creating potential hotspots for new coronavirus strains. And finally, we had our monthly roundup of new products in the dairy aisles. You can read all of these and more at DairyReporter.com. 
I should point out that if you are listening to this and your company has new products to tell the world about, you can easily send us all the details by email, including a photo, and we'll use it in that monthly roundup of new products. It tends to be mostly US and UK, with some from Europe, Australia and New Zealand, so it would be nice to hear from other parts of the world too. So let's get to this week's first interview. Metal Toledo Product Inspection has announced a new strategic partnership with Everything. The partnership is intended to provide food manufacturers, retailers and brand owners with end-to-end traceability and a food production reporting solution. To tell us more is Rob Rogers, Senior Advisor, Food Safety and Regulations at Metal Toledo Product Inspection. You've partnered with Everything on this. I wonder if you could tell me how that partnership started. Yeah, so we were seeing a lot of activity in the regulatory space regarding digitalizing the food system from a food safety perspective. And we believe at Mettler Toledo, our solutions, our product inspection solutions in the manufacturing and processing stage are an important key event that happens in in the manufacturing of a product, ensuring that it's inspected to know that it's free of contamination, it's got the right label on it, it's the proper declared weight. So seeing all this information from regulators like the FDA's new errors of smarter food safety and the GFSI's race to the top, where they're really looking to improve trust, transparency, and confidence in the food safety space. So that kind of got us thinking, well, how do we deliver our product inspection data to the food safety regulatory space? And obviously with a lot of talk of blockchain and cloud-based type solutions, that's kind of the avenue that we started exploring. We came to understand this company, Everything, um, and they played a part in developing the GS1 digital link. They've been involved in the EPCIS version 2 standards. And so understanding that they had a really good understanding of coding and digitally identifying products with a cloud-based type solution, we felt that they were a, a really good, strong group to partner with in this endeavor. And what is the issue that you were trying to address together? Yeah, so what we're seeing is, especially from the pandemic of the past year or so, an escalation in the desire to do activities such as remote auditing. With the travel restrictions and things of that nature, it was very challenging for auditors and regulators and compliance groups to go in and confirm that facilities were in fact meeting the demands of the compliance organization. And so the FDA and GFSI started looking at ways to conduct remote audits and have started to develop programs really looking at, again, digitalizing the food safety arena. So things like, obviously there are things that will have to be done on site. 
unfortunately we haven't uh, developed a virtual smell test yet. So you still have to be at the plant to kind of do that smell test and to do those physical swabbing activities. Uh, but a lot of the activities, certainly the reporting activities, information that is happening on inspection devices throughout the process, that information can be looked at and evaluated digitally and remotely. And what we see the benefit of that is, is really focusing that on-site visit for the regulators to very specific things that need to be on-site. That's going to reduce time on, on the facility floor for the manufacturer. Obviously, when a manufacturer gets audited, they have to have staff available and potential delays within the production environment and things like that that negatively affect their business. Uh, this is a way where we can make those internal audits much, much more efficient and focused and utilize things like digital technology and data analytics and cloud-based solutions to really take care of the reporting side of it. Are they doing all the reporting correctly? Is the documentation there? And really, we've kind of even thought of it, of taking it a step further of allowing this product inspection type data, again, to be visible to an auditing group or a regulator to help them prioritize facilities. A facility that is doing all their tests on time, they're not adjusting their systems frequently. Every activity at the uh, inspection device has a corrective action implemented when it's identified a, a potential hazard that particular facility is doing all the right things. They're working the program the way that it's supposed to be. So I may not have to pay as much attention to that facility as another facility that is missing all their performance verification activities. They're not implementing corrective actions correctly. They are having to adjust their systems all the time. Their metal detector is going off all of the time every day. Clearly, there's, 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 there's more of an issue in that facility than another. Uh, so the ability to really prioritize and kind of have a high-level view of what's going on in a particular manufacturing facility, we see the potential for real benefits there from a, the industry as a whole, really. And I know it's a very general question, but how does the system work for a company that wants to take advantage of this? Yeah, so the beauty of it all is really – there's some fear within the manufacturing environment still of, well, gee, I don't want all my data out there just in the ether and have anybody have access to it. And uh, what are they going to do with it? The beauty of these services is that really the manufacturer, it's their data. They control who sees what, what they see when they see it. And that's really where we see the fear kind of leaving of engaging in this sort of activity. Because now if they understand that they control the data, the value of benefit that they have is really the largest benefit. They understand where the product is. When you are engaging in activities such as recall events, the speed of a recall event is exponentially faster based on knowledge and understanding of where the product is within the supply chain or within the distribution chain. And that's really where we see 
the biggest value, I think, is having the clarity and understanding of that product's lifestyle throughout the entire ecosystem from sourcing to manufacturing to distribution to retail to consumer. And really, even you could extend that into a recycling parameter for a product to complete that total life cycle of that product from its development to its recycling. And so what are the advantages for companies that do take advantage of this? I see the advantage really being a lot of different areas for the business, right? So if we look at it from the consumer aspect, the the ability to interact with the consumer, we're seeing more of this uh, smart packaging, if you will, where the You know, I've seen kids in the grocery store running down the cereal box item, scanning a QR code to play a little game that's associated with the character on the cereal box. The company now has understanding, well, who's interacting with my product? What sort of interactions are they doing? So future developments of that smart packaging will will really be able to be done to understand where they can adapt true value for that. If you look at it from an inventory perspective. They understand that this particular brand or this particular product is being uh, sold at a higher rate in a particular location. Maybe they can do specials in that area or do some better marketing in other territories where that product may not be doing as well. Uh, In the manufacturing space, it gives them access and confidence that Uh, not only understanding where that product started as a raw material and then was developed into a batch of materials that was then manufactured into a physical product, they have that full traceability and understanding of that product throughout their facility. Uh, So again, can help with understanding things like, well, if they're, particularly if they're inspecting throughout those different processes, it can help them to identify bad suppliers of sourced material and maybe go back to those suppliers and help to develop those suppliers inspection programs to benefit the entire industry. Again, really seeing this as a lot of advantages for the manufacturer from an understanding of the product, but also the traceability of that product throughout the entire ecosystem from raw material to, again, really even a recycling stage. And is this something that the companies themselves would do and analyze the data themselves, or do you do that for them and then interpret it for them? Yeah. So where we see Mettler Toledo fitting into that equation is our inspection solutions providing that raw processing data. That then goes can go again into existing factory management system information, ERP system information, um, but that also could be moved up into a cloud-based type solution. And that's really where kind of the magic happens, right? Uh, The product inspection data is putting all kinds of data into this cloud-based solution. And then within that cloud-based solution, being able to analyze that data, manage that data, and report analytics on that data in maybe a dashboard type scenario where rather than seeing a bunch of metal detection tests occurring on a metal detector, they see a green light on that particular line saying that all the tests have been done on time. The system is within its certification window. So the system has been calibrated. All of that can feed into that. So it's not necessarily that we have a turnkey solution today. 
the reality is is that product inspection data could be put to any cloud-based type solution and that information in that cloud-based solution could be developed and reporting the way that the manufacturer themselves wants to see that information or wants to share that information so it's really working with all the parties and that's why you know we really wanted to uh, partner with everything again seeing that they have a very good understanding of the gs1 standards of the epcis uh, version 2 standards they're adopting princi principles of uh, active digital identities for products they're a company that we see as as being at the forefront of of the potential of of this market but there are other solution providers out there that will do that and i think that's where we see the flexibility it's not going to be a metler toledo one all save all type solution there's a lot of flexibility built into this capability and provides the manufacturers and that commercial base i guess if you will the flexibility of choice and does the end consumer fit into this data? And if so, how? That's certainly part of a product's life cycle, right? Is the consumer part of it. So what well, we're seeing consumers act in a more digital way today with everything. So uh, there's direct to consumer business has exploded over the course of the last year. If you are lucky enough to live in an environment where, or a location where the restaurants and food establishments are starting to open up more readily, what you'll recognize when you go into that restaurant is you're going to scan a QR code for a menu. You're not going to see a printed menu anymore. So I think the culture is engaging in a digital way right now. And the more and more they do that, the more and more things like this will be included within that digital scope. And are there any areas in food, in dairy that there are issues with food safety at the moment or that you think may need to be in the future? I mean, if all you have to do is really look at the recalls we get, right? Um, you know, we have, we still have issues with improper labels and undeclared allergens. That, that's a big one in the dairy area. Physical contamination is still an issue. The wrong label on an incorrect product, those sort of things are significant contributors to product recalls. And those sort of things, again, I really see as solvable. Well, if we have a physical contamination issue, we can deploy physical contamination inspection principles to help relieve that. If we have undeclared allergens or mislabeled products or unreadable date codes, that can be identified in an inspection device and notify the uh, operator that, you know, there's an issue with the date code on this particular product. And I think if we go down the road to really deal with the solvable problems, then that allows us the more focus on the things that I think really are the biggest challenge for our industry to solve. And those are the microbiological type problems. You know, I see there's real value in, in doing things like this and in, in trying to solve those recall issues, because it's clear there's still a problem. And it's not like it's you know, a startup company that's having all the recalls, these are still large multinational organizations, you know, that still have a little bit of work to do. And do you have a webinar coming up to showcase this? 
So we are having a few different webinars together with everything to kind of discuss the project. The webinar will be available on demand. If you go to the www.mt.com website on our events page, you'll be able to find the uh, on-demand version for that. Next, it's to a new incubator program in town, and it's called Milkubator, and it's from Spanish-headquartered Pascual Innoventures. It's the first global incubation program for cellular agriculture technologies in the dairy industry. And to learn more about it, we had a chat with Sejal Ravji, director of Pascual Innoventures. First, if you could tell me a little bit about Pascual. Yeah, Pascual is a uh, family-owned company. Founded in 1969 by an entrepreneur named Thomas Pasquale, hence the name. He uh, unfortunately died in uh, 2006, but it's clear he left a legacy and solid foundations that I believe continue to hold true today. You know, uh, a company with purpose and innovation. You know, we talk about Simon Sinek and the Golden Circles and purpose and his famous TED talk in 210. But actually, you know, the great thing about Pasquale is they've been doing that for years in terms of purpose. So, it made a lot of sense for me to join the company and and the purpose is to you know to give and do our best to ensure the future of foods so this guy he sort of personified the entrepreneurial spirit so he pioneered uh, UHT milk technology in Spain which now accounts for 95 percent of the type of milk drunk in Spain which if you compare that to the UK it's crazy because everyone in the UK drinks pasteurized chilled milk so that's our, our main activity in the preparation and packaging of milk and other dairy derivatives like yogurts and other dairy products. Uh, we also do juices, natural mineral water with Bethoya, coffee with the brand Mokai. In fact, Pasquale was the first company in Spain to launch plant-based drinks with the brand Vive Soy, which was, uh, I believe, was launched in 2002, right? So, you know, if you think about everything that's going on right now with plant-based drinks, well, Vive Soy was launched in 2002. So Pasquale has a turnover of around 700 million plus, and it has international presence in over sort of 50 countries. So innovation has always been part of Pasquale, you know, in its DNA. You know, the great thing about Pasquale, and this is why I love working with them, is they go beyond the values that transcend the business, you know, and always has done. So there's this philosophy in the company to add value wherever it can, you know, in this world. It's they try and create value in society. They have values like generosity, diversity, social inclusion, food security, health and well-being, circular economy, and you know, trying to do our bit sort of to ensure a healthier planet. And so what was behind the new Pasquale InnoVentures? Pasquale being an innovative company and having innovation in its DNA, we were looking for really different models because, you know, the world is changing. The world has changed massively. We know in the last couple of years with COVID-19, the pandemic, it's accelerated this change. So, you know, we need to do things differently. So we created Pasquale Innoventures as the open innovation arm and corporate venturing arm of Pasquale. So Pasquale Innoventures is its own company. So it has its own reporting structure. It has its own finance it's a standalone company. And what we do in Pascal and Adventures is we have a flexible model with the mission to identify and build new businesses and opportunities, always in sort of the food tech space, but outside of the mothership, you know, the mothership being Pasquale. So we immerse ourselves in the, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem with our open innovation spirit to create alliances and to help the food tech ecosystem grow. And clearly what 
we want to do is help the ecosystem grow and evolve and grow ourselves, you know, grow mutually. So the food tech space, we know, okay, you know very clearly, it has seen rapid growth over the last five years. There are more and more startups, venture capital, corporate venturing accelerators than ever before in this space. You know, if we just look at the report from Five Season Ventures, investment in food tech reached around 2.4 billion euros last year. And we expect and everyone expects it to keep growing. So our philosophy is to mingle with everybody in this space, be it corporations, startups, scale-ups, innovation hubs, accelerators, incubators, VCs, academic institutions, whoever, whoever shares, you know, our philosophy, because we believe that we want to be learning from whoever we can learn from. So we have this sort of insatiable appetite to learn from everyone around us. And we want to be agile enough to move quickly to identify and build those opportunities and build those new businesses. So that's why we created Pascal and Adventures. And our model is like this. It's flexible. It's a sandbox model where not only do we plan to invest in startups, you know, as a typical CVC would in strategic verticals, we also want to invent and create our own startups, right, as a corporate venture builder. So, so we're sort of this hybrid CVC corporate venture builder. And with a corporate venture builder, we'll be, you know, the idea is to create startups and build them, create the boat, and then put it out to sea. Give the startup its own financing. We'll, we'll look for the talent. We'll look for the resources and let them go out and help the startup grow. And on top of that, and this is one of the key things about Pascual and Adventures is we want to use our sort of capacity, our muscle and know-how as a corporate, so you're the part of Pascual, to act as an accelerator, right? So in a way, we're also sort of like an accelerator to help and support those startups, not only those startups in which we invest, clearly, but also those startups that we build. And we help them through developing their minimum viable product, their business model, helping them with the branding, helping them with their advertising, their go-to-market strategies, the business plan, etc. So could you tell me a bit more about the Milky Bater? It's a hybrid of incubator and milk, right? So we put the Y in there uh, for obvious reasons. But, you know, if we think about right now what's happening in sort of alternative protein, the sort of technological pillars around alternative protein and the revolution and everything's growing around there. I've got to admit, by the way, I prefer using the phrase complementary protein. I'm a flexitarian myself. And, you know, when I think about alternative protein, I think of that as a complementary to what I'm eating and consuming rather than alternative because people are still probably going to eat meat and other dairy products that come from animals. But what they want to do is they want to have choices. So that's why I prefer the term complementary protein. And, and so in these technological pillars, we see plant-based, we see fermentation, and we see cultivated technologies. So for us, we see fermentation and cell culture technologies as huge opportunities to massively change the way people consume foods and at the same time positively impact the health of our planet and the economy. And so dairy being traditionally sort of sourced from animals, you know, we know has been known and consumed for like over a thousand years, right? You know, without significant changes. And suddenly, right, you're seeing this potential disruption that could significantly impact the industry like never before. So last year, we launched a plant-based challenge, okay, in one of the technological pillars. And this year, we want to take that, you know, next logical step forward and bet on the future with cellular agriculture. So the Milcubator aims to support innovative projects developing, you know, these technological advances in the fields of cell culture and fermentation techniques. So what we'll do in the Milcubator each year, you know, we'll choose from hundreds of applicants up to 10 startups 
to join our six-month hybrid incubation programs. It's hybrid because of the world we're living in today. It's kind of part online and part physical, you know, on site. So we call it a hybrid incubation program. And once selected, the participants will be able to test their products with us, thanks to our global network of mentors, and have access to virtually or physically world-class R&D technologies, facilities, and everything they need to grow their technologies into products and then therefore, hopefully, to commercialization. And so who can apply for this? Do they have to be small companies? Or? We're looking for startups, spin-offs, research centers, you know, with similar characteristics. We're looking for startups with commercially validated solutions or products with market traction capable of addressing these challenges, you know, in terms of these technologies and developing their value proposals in the same business area of possible ventures, but also spin-offs and research centers and universities who may be running a line of investigation or, you know, or research, maybe developing a patent or some form of intellectual property on a research line or product addressing you know, the same challenges in these technological areas. So they're the kind of people that we're looking for. And you're taking entries globally? Yeah, absolutely. It's global. Anybody can apply. What are the categories that you have for the competition? You know, it's actually quite difficult to sort of categorize these technologies because, you know, the whole world of cellular agriculture, precision fermentation and cell-based is quite in its early stage of development. But what we tried to do was, was look at the basics of the technology stacks okay, that we have today. So we tried to divide our, you know, the whole cellular agriculture space into three parts, okay, in our call for projects. So one would be cell-based. The other one would be fermentation-based, and the other one would be applied technologies. So to help, cell-based would be things like, say, the isolation, improvement, and classification of human and animal cell lines. Another one would be production of different products, ingredients, and constituents in here. Growth media and cell culture media is very important for us. So novel growth media and growth media factors, that would be uh, key in this area. And also advanced cell growth techniques, okay, and processes. And then we move to the next one, which is fermentation-based. Probably a little bit easier, if you like, but here we're looking for sort of new microorganisms or optimization of host cells and development of microbial strains. Also targeted sort of metabolite identification selection. Here we're talking about sort of how to optimize feedstocks, how to get more efficiency, how to improve titers, and also the area of bioprocessing design and manufacturing and constituents harvesting bioprocessing is really going to be important in this space. So that would be something really important for us. Also, applied technologies. So bioreactors, replication technology, machine learning models for production optimization would be key here. And we, we see a lot of people now moving into these spaces because they see that the cell and fermentation spaces are taken up by many, many people and it's growing very quickly. And, and they're looking for so white spaces, applied technologies. It's also a space now where New things are coming and up and coming. For example, artificial intelligence models for helping everything regarding cell-based and fermentation technologies and also everything on production control systems. So there's a lot to do. We know that further research is needed, but we want to be the ones promoting this research. We want to be the ones helping. We want to be the ones sort of pioneering this kind of space. The companies that do get chosen to be a part of this, what will the benefits be for them? The whole idea is we want to be helping them to speed up the projects and close the distance between the big bit between idea and market, right? What we're trying to do is take them to the next level, okay, and speed up the project and say, look, 
we want to take you from an idea to now commercial and make some money. So we'll support them to thrive in, in the cellular agriculture industry and we'll provide knowledge, we'll provide facilities, we'll connect them up to the global ecosystem. And really importantly, last but not least, investments. You know, and these investments could come directly from Pascal Adventures, but also through our sort of partner, Eatable Adventures Investment Network. First of all, I think, you know, the most relevant part of this hybrid program is the experience that we as Pascual and Pascual Adventures and Eatable Adventures can offer and can provide to the participants, including world-class mentors in each of the phases of the process, okay, the learning process and, and everything from taking them from idea to market. Uh, we'll be making prototypes, we'll be pilot testing as much as we can, and we'll be scaling up. So, you mentioned the win-win. What's the win for Pasquale? We're facing global challenges, right? And we know that. But these global challenges, I think, can only be resolved thanks to these kind of bold bets, right, that Pasquale are betting on. You know, we really care about the planet. We really care about society. And we want to, and we want to create solid impact on people's food habits. And also, we want to be there playing in this space, right, in the Champions League. I think we have a responsibility and a pioneering responsibility to promote, move, accelerate this space. You know, I'm a big fan of the collective intelligence, you know, and, and I think that topped with a strong sense of purpose. And I think that makes, it kind of makes sense for everyone. So this project really does put us on the global map. And now we have to deliver. And so as far as the logistical stuff, what are the key dates for application deadlines and when all of this will be judged? Jim, we just launched the call for projects, which will be open until June the 20th. So people have just under a month to apply. You can either go to www.milkubator.com or you can go to our main website, which is pasqualinaventures.com to get all the details. So once the call for projects is over, we'll review the applications received and start the selection phase organizing interviews with all the participants and in this selection evaluation phase we'll be choosing up to 10 startups okay entrepreneurs or specific scientific projects like i said before you know it doesn't always have to just be startups to join our six-month program there's a hybrid program which is part virtual part physical we plan then to start the program the actual incubation program itself in july so that will last for the six months till the uh, end of november and it will officially close in December with the Demo Day event. By the end of the year, we want to be making sure that we get those startups on a really awesome Demo Day where we can get all the key people together and stakeholders that we need to push these startups on further. The evaluation criteria that will apply are, first of all, everything regarding innovation criteria. So when I talk about this, I'm talking about sort of the technology, the business model, the product and service, specifically sort of, you know, the value proposition. What is the level of innovation differentiation of the proposals and the relevant products and services with respect to what exists today in current competition in terms of the application of the technology or intellectual property, etc.? That's one of the pillars of the criteria. The other one would be everything regarding teams. So we're going to work, you know, we work with incipient, these incipient projects. So it's highly likely that most of them won't have everything. Okay, So we'll, we'll help provide that for them. We will evaluate things like uh, you know, clear skills and the abilities to ensure the success of the project. We put a lot of value on the team, a lot of value on entrepreneurial spirit, on teamwork, on leadership. So really important for us. And also social skills in terms of developing networks and also knowledge of the industry and scope of the project, things like that. Really important for us, Jim, is the commitment and dedication of the team toward the project, right? So, you know, is it full time? Are they all in it? Is it part time? 
So these are very relevant factors for us. And obviously then talking about bread and butter stuff like uh, analyzed business criteria in terms of, all right, what's the market potential, scalability, profitability, go-to-market strategy, social and financial impact of the project? What's the scalability and international scope? So all these kind of typical things that you would see from an incubator accelerator, yeah, you know, these are the types of criteria we'll be, we'll be applying. And that brings us nicely back to something I'm sure you're all familiar with, and that is business cards. If you can cast your mind back to events, I'd say on a personal basis, I'd carry about 100 business cards with me, which is a bit of a pain, and then meet hundreds of people and swap business cards, and then get back to the hotel and try and remember which one was which, who I'd interviewed, who I was supposed to call for interviews, and it all gets to be a bit of a nightmare. So one company has had the bright idea to put a stop to that, and do it all with digital business cards. Which not only means I'm not trying to piece together a big puzzle, it also means that I won't have to recycle them all. The company with the idea of 21st century business cards is called Mobilo, and we chatted about how it all works with founder of the company, Peter Lindbergh. So I wonder if uh, we could start, if you could tell me just a little about the company. Yeah, sure. So... 2019, September, uh, I came back from the uh, last trade show that I ever went to in the, in the past two years. And uh, I came back with a stack of business cards, uh, 90 paper business cards in my pocket. And it was 11 p.m., got back to the hotel room. And uh, knowing that the American networking space, I knew that I had to follow up either the same day or the next morning, because otherwise people would have just forgotten about me. It's a fast-paced environment. But, you know, after speaking to 100 people uh, during the day at 11 p.m., the only thing you want is a beer. So uh, I looked at the stack of business cards, and the, I think the stack of business cards looked at me too, and, and we said, okay, this is not going to happen today. But the next day, I tried to download apps to scan these business cards to get them in my CRM system, and, and nothing really worked. So... I was really scratching my head and thinking, okay, why, why do we still carry around old-fashioned relic of the past and what could be a good alternative? And nothing, nothing came up, no app, nothing. And I think I started asking my friends to say, hey, why, do we, you know, why doesn't an app work and what do we do about it? And then all of a sudden it clicked. I had done research for, on RFID before that and I knew that we could create an action, a response, by holding a card with a chip to your phone, and then the information would jump over. So uh, built an MVP, and three months later, coincidence, but I showed it to a large VP of an oil company, and he was blown away. And I thought, okay, wait, this guy just ordered five cards for me. I didn't care what the costs were. And uh, then the next day, his office called me, and they wanted to roll it out to the whole team. So I thought, okay, there's something there. So I found uh, somebody to help me, a co-founder, and we then started build, building out the company. Fast forward to today, our cards have been used over 300,000 times uh, in more than 160 countries. And people uh, seem to love them because it just takes away uh, the cost of your paper business cards, takes away the effort of putting it into your system. But it also helps you to follow up because you meet a lot of people, but reminding yourself to follow up is, is sometimes tough. And this, this really does the trick. And how does the technology work? And do you need an app for it? And is it, is it cross-platform? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So all iPhones 2017 and later have built-in 
NFC. So you can just, no app needed, you can tap the card on the phone and immediately something happens. Android actually started this a lot earlier. They started, I, I bumped into somebody with a phone of 2016, a five-year-old phone. I'm not sure who carries around a phone that old, but I said, well, let's try it. And I tapped the card against the back of the phone. For Android, you have to tap it on the back center and it worked. So with Android, it's a little more difficult because there are literally a thousand models and types, but most of them have NFC and it works. And otherwise, uh, if everybody, both Android and iOS are on the, on the latest updates, you can just open the camera and scan the QR code on the back of the card because there's definitely a backup option there. I remember trying to scan business cards into my phone, you know, 10 years ago, and it would use that sort of recognition program and it would maybe get 10% of the card correct. And then you'd have to fill in the rest yourself. But I think one of the problems when I go on to a trade show and I come back with a hundred cards is remembering which one is associated with which person or with which product. Is there a way that it can be associated with a face or a website or in, so that you can say, oh yeah, that's the guy that I, I remember talking to? That, that's a very good question. So sharing your contact details is nice, but soon we got the request from professional networkers and still during the pandemic, we had lots of people doing handshake deals like real estate brokers and plumbing companies. And, you know, that still continued, even though there was this pandemic. So they said, okay, how can I not only share my contact details, but also exchange them? I want to have the contact details from the person that I'm meeting. So we built a lead generation mode. And what happens there is that I switch. So I know this in advance. So I switch my car to lead generation mode. And then I meet you, Jim, and I tap my car on your phone. Instead of you seeing my contact details, it asks you for your, your name, your phone number. And that form can be customized. So you can add or remove fields. You can ask a custom question. So that's the first thing that happens. Then after you fill that out, which is usually with autofill, two or three taps, and then you and I both get a text message. So you'll get a text message with my contact details, which are already in my app and sent to you. And then as a courtesy, I get your details texted to me as well. But I can also automate that to go into our CRM. And with that information is also the location that we met. So I know exactly where we met. So if I met 100 people at a trade show, then that will be uh, linked to that location. So that's easy. What we still need to add and what, what's on the roadmap for next quarter is a sort of a notes section so that when I, I met you, I can quickly jot down a couple of bullet points on uh, what we spoke about or uh, what the next step is for our meeting. And how does the lead generation aspect of the whole thing work if you're in sales? Yeah, if, you're, um, if you would be in sales, the thing that I would do is I would make sure that your CRM is connected to Mobilo so that every single time I meet somebody, this contact information of Jim, the person that I'm meeting, is sent to my CRM, but also that there's an action plan created immediately. Because most CRMs, they can immediately schedule a task to follow up. They can immediately schedule an email to go out to say, hey, it was great to meet you today, uh, Jim. Here's a link to my calendar. Let's schedule 15 minutes to follow up uh, this week and chat more. So it really helps you to get in the groove and not miss out to any, any other opportunities anymore. Is it useful for things like if you're at an event and you're talking to somebody and they say, oh, we've got a webinar coming up about how you use this equipment. Can it be used to sort of direct people to register for webinars or white papers? 
Yeah, for sure. So just like you can switch modes from the contact, temporarily have it direct anybody to any URL. So if you're going to set up things for your trade show and you have this sign up page, then you put that into your card. So everybody you meet, you just tap the card, the sign up page opens up and then you let people sign up right then and there. I've tried people to to direct them to websites and you have to tell them HTTPS and then slash slash. And then before you get to the end of the website, 10 typos are made. So this is just a beautiful, seamless way of getting people to a link. And is it something that's updatable as well? So you can change it as you on the fly or change it as you need to? Yeah, we did research uh, and it turns out that 60% of the business cards are not ordered because people ran out, but because uh, an email address changed or uh, a last name sometimes changes uh, when people get married or a phone number gets updated, a location of the office is, uh, is changed. So 60% of business cards are just thrown away uh, because of outdated information. And that's the cool thing with our solution. You go into the app, or if you have a, a large organization, you would have an admin that has access to all the employees and that can make updates for them. Uh, we even have built in integrations with companies that they can sync uh, with one press of a button, their whole HR information into our database. So with a click of a button, two or 300 employees are updated instantly. In, in terms of, obviously, I don't expect you to give me the exact cost of these things, but is it cost effective for companies and for individuals to use this as opposed to business cards? Well, companies look at cost. Uh, we recently spoke to an accounting firm and you would think that they would know exactly what they spend on paper business cards. And it turns out they had 1,500 people on board and they were spending $300,000 a year on paper business cards. This is exactly $200 per employee per year. And we would just uh, take 70% off of that. So it's never been easier to find savings uh, on your P&L than to switch uh, from paper business cards to Mobilo. I know that from traveling around the world, in some places, business cards are a bit of a status symbol. Um, and the way that they're presented is also kind of ritualized in some ways. Do you anticipate that this is going to be globally accepted? Yeah, we keep a close eye on, on Japan, as I think that they have the strongest business card culture uh, in the world. My, I can remember my dad used to work for a Japanese company, and he would explain to me how you would take the card with two hands, read it, and take it in. And then you put it in a respectful place as well, because it's basically that confirmation that business card is, is a confirmation of you as a person with the title and the, and the authority within the company that makes that really, really a strong cultural aspect of the context exchange. And, and you have to respect that. Now, I was reading an article and I keep uh, looking at that because I really uh, am intrigued by that. And the teleconferencing systems that they mentioned in this article are definitely taking over in Asia as well. And Japan is slowly adapting to that. So I think it'll go slower in other countries. But, you know, in the end, we can't avoid having video calls and trying to reduce our travel. So, yeah, people will look for the alternative and then find out that there is a good alternative as well. And in every country, I think sustainability is a huge issue at the moment. Um, yeah, it's not only an issue, but we're seeing the effects of it really on a daily basis. You can't open the newspaper uh, or you're going to read about how farmers are needing to spend more money to get water to their crops or a hurricane in India yesterday. They never saw hurricanes and now all of a sudden they have five in the last year. The world is changing and we can do something about it. And do you anticipate that these cards will have 
other applications that you haven't necessarily thought about yet in terms of its evolution? Ah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think there are, because we offer the option for you to link to anything, we actually see quite a few people in the social space sharing their TikTok or Instagram simply with a tap. There's also some accessories that might boost that. So we do not only do business cards in plastic, wood, and metal, but also we have a key fob. You can put it to your keychain. Uh, we have a, a small sticker. You can put it on the back of your phone. So you don't even have to think about bringing anything with you anymore. You can just tap that. And that might definitely boost some of these creative ways of using this. Yeah, for sure. And as far as the fact that technology is always changing, are you constantly having to update, upgrade, keep up with the latest iPhone version and all of those things? Backwards compatibility is our main focus, so we make sure that it works with every phone. The last thing you want to do is be bothered about technology. And I really believe, it is really my belief that technology is here to help us and not make things more complex. So this needs to be seamless and effortless, and that's the way it is right now. And yeah, you're right. It takes time and energy and a lot of uh, our development uh, time to make sure that we keep up with the latest uh, updates and, and tips and tricks. But in the end, you know, we need to keep it simple for everybody to use. And where do people go to find out about this? Yeah, mobilacard.com. A really good idea there. I guess the only time when a paper business card might come in handy after that is if you have one with you and you meet someone famous and want to get their autograph and that's the only thing you have for them to write on. Not that I'm exactly sure how often that happens. I've met famous people randomly before, but I can't say I've ever had the desire to thrust a business card under their face and say, can you sign this please? Having said that, I do have a bit of a collection of autographs of famous people I've interviewed over the years, but they're not all on business cards, obviously. I digress yet again. So there's another hour gone, and here we are in June. How'd that happen? I have two interviews already done for next week, although of course neither of them are edited yet. I do have a few others where it's agreed we're going to do the interview, but we haven't got a time or date figured out, which sometimes can be a challenge with time zones. I assume that if the Olympics in Tokyo do actually go ahead, that it will mean lots of late nights, which aren't really that good when you're tired and you have to work the next morning, or I'll just catch up the next day. Having said that, I do have very fond memories of staying up late when I was a lot younger to listen to all kinds of sports on the radio. I really loved my shortwave radio and could sometimes pick up Voice of America and listen to one of my broadcasting heroes, Paul Harvey. I know it makes me sound really nerdy that I love shortwave radio and that was also one of my favorite ever Christmas gifts, but I used to absolutely love it when Paul Harvey came on the radio with his catchphrase, Stand by for news, and then he would end with a really quirky article and he would sign off by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. The Voice of America station was also where I was introduced to baseball and NFL games long before I moved over to North America. Uh, the good old days of terrible signals and those freaky numbers stations which are allegedly for spies that I could listen to for hours. Apparently they're still active and I think there are a few websites dedicated to numbers stations as well. Something for you to check out over the weekend if you're bored. So on that note, or on those numbers, we'll sign off. And I hope wherever in the world you may be, that you have a great week and that you'll join us again next time. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.